0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our executive pastor, Nanny Colazzo. Well, good morning. Welcome to Calvary Hate. You heard Pastor Mike mention the uh, Thailand team. I want to take a moment to give them some props. Here they go, they're all sitting in the front row. Stand up guys, turn around, wave for everybody. Awesome. All right, re- real quick, real quick. One word, one word that described your trip. One word. Come on, come on, come on. Exciting. All right, what else? Beautiful. Beautiful. Outstanding. One word. One word to describe your trip. Yeah. Incredible. Nice. One more. One more. Genuine. Nice. Did you guys learn how to greet, like, th- sweaty cop? <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just want to make sure we point that out because, um, you know, that's, what, that's part of our mission of the church, not just to love him, grow in him, but also to share him. And so we are so looking forward to hear a little more in detail. I mean, we were getting some updates via, you know, text and seeing the posts on on Instagram and what is super, super encouraging by what God is doing. The fire doesn't stop because you're here. Wherever Jesus is at, that's where the fire is at. And Jesus, he was with you there. He is with you here as much as he was there. So if you stick with him, whether you're on the mountaintop or the valley, that's where the fire's at. That's how you keep it going. So, all right. Hey, a couple more uh, updates. Um, you have not, a few months ago, you heard us talk about the remodel that we are going to be doing. Hammers start, haven't started swinging. You don't see any dust flying around just yet. And the reason is because the remodel plans, they're still moving forward, but right now, the construction plans are with the city, waiting for permitting and whatnot. So, of course, everybody wants it to move faster than. Uh, but I've been told that when you're in these projects, it takes longer than you expect. And it costs more money than you think it's going to expect. But we'll see. But it's progressing. It's progressing. Things are still on point. Also, um, in light of that... Uh, future project. We've decided to do something that's going to give us a little more space to reimagine what our Sunday morning food offerings can look like as we remodel the grill area and all that. And so we've decided this Sunday will be our last Sunday. It's going to be temporary, but we're going to be shutting down the grill starting next Sunday through August. This is going to give the bridge residents a few, some time to, uh, to, to rest as well as help us give us some what else could, what else, how else can this look? to give us some vision for that. So we'll still have some food offerings on the patio. There'll be complimentary coffee, tea, and some other things. So just because the gorilla is not opening, is won't be there. The food service, we'll still have some options. Please hang around after service and whatnot and uh, enjoy that. And please pray for us. Pray for vision. Pray for God's direction. You know, all these strings being pulled, you know, just kind of stresses our systems. And so it's going to be a good test for us. Join me in a word of prayer. Um, as we look at, look at Psalm chapter 12. Father, we thank you for this morning, the privilege and honor that it is to gather as your people, not to hear a band, not to hear a motivating speech. Lord, you are the audience. We are the worshipers. This service isn't for us. It doesn't matter whether or not we like the music or whether or not we like the sermon, are you pleased by what you see here, by what's happening? Are you pleased, Lord God, by this this gathering of worship? As we surrender, Lord, to you, to your spirit, what you're speaking to us through your word, may we show our love for you, Lord, by our surrender and our obedience and submission to you. Amen. In my prep for this morning, I read about a competition called The World's Biggest Liar. It's a competition in which liars from all over the world gather in in a city called Cumbria in England. They gather at this inn, the bridge inn, in Cumbria, England, And they're each given five minutes to spin the biggest, most convincing lie that they can. The last contestant to be crowned the world's biggest liar, he pulled the wool over the judge's eyes with a story about how the ground in Cumbria is not only rich in coal, but also has these large underground seams of sugar that absorb into the hedges and generate every flavor of jam in Cumbria's large jam supply. Do you know anyone who would do well in this competition? Does somebody come to mind? By the way, before you make your decision, unfortunately, lawyers and politicians are not allowed to compete. (laughs) Because according to rule number seven, they have an unfair advantage over amateur liars. Well, it's one thing to lie in competition, but it's on a whole nother level when deception is all around us pervading our society. From deep fakes to social media profiles, whether it's a misleading conversation in our living rooms or the White House press secretary being ambiguous in the briefing room, we don't need to be expert sociologists to know that we are witnessing an erosion of public trust on a global scale. But just for fun, let's see if you can recognize who made these two false statements. Number one, what athlete said, I have never taken performance-enhancing drugs? (laughs) Michael (laughs) Phelps. Anybody else? Who am I thinking of? Lance (laughs) Lance Armstrong. Somebody last ever said, all of them. (laughs) Who said, I am not a crook? Nixon, yes. Richard Nixon said this when he was being accused and questioned about his role in the Watergate scandal. And speaking of politics, as we gear up for what looks like another volatile election cycle, presidential hopefuls have already started posturing themselves making promises and slinging mud at one another, who are you going to believe? Who can you trust when authority figures, judges, and lawyers stretch the truth? Who do you trust when your friend or your neighbor or maybe even your child takes you for a ride? One elementary school principal tells a story of receiving a phone call one day, and the caller said, Hello? My son Johnny will not come to school today because he is sick. Well, sensing that something was amiss, the principal asked, who am I speaking to please? The caller said, I am my father. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever been lied to? Who can you believe when someone lies to you about the state of finances? Who do you believe when allegations are downplayed, denied, or discovered to be fabricated? <laughs> Sorry. Hey, we have an awesome family room where he can play and let out those wiggles. And Can somebody show them to the family room, one of the ushers, please? That'd be awesome. In a world filled with alternative facts, fake news, leaks, and scandals, who who can you trust when you realize that you're alone among liars? This is what David, the author of Psalm 12, is begging God to rescue him from in the first four verses. He starts off with this cry of anguish, help, O Lord. Don't you love the simplicity, the directness and the brevity of these opening words? Yes, we can always pray more, but don't discount this short one to three word prayer. When you're in a pinch, when you're in a crisis or a high stakes situation, high stakes conversation, help. Hey, that's a prayer that arrests God's attention. But what is, God, what, is Dave, what is causing David to pray like this? Read it with me. Help, O Lord, for the godly are fast disappearing. The faithful have vanished from the earth. Neighbors lie to each other, speaking with flattering lips and deceitful hearts. May the Lord cut off their flattering lips and silence their boastful tongues. They say, we will lie to our heart's content. Our lips are our own who can stop us? Now, of course, he's using some hyperbole here, but don't diminish this claim about godly people disappearing and faithful people vanishing just because he's using poetic exaggeration. You see, what he's doing is that it's giving us insight into how isolated and alone he feels because he realizes he's in the minority. The people who love God who are faithful to speak truth and stand up for what is right, are fading away. And deceitful people are dominating his world. Help God, there is no one I can trust because I am surrounded by liars and drowning in lies. See, all human interaction starts with a measure of trust. And in order to grow that relationship, you have to increase the amount of trust that you give. Trust is a a cornerstone for a society to function in a healthy manner, and without it, relationships can become toxic. Imagine for a minute that you and the people that you encounter on the regular didn't trust each other. Think about your neighbors that live on your street, a family member, or maybe your health professional. Imagine the cashier that you where you shop or your babysitter your co-workers or your supervisor at work visualize your your kids teachers fellow students other parents or coaches at school now what if every time your paths cross with them both of you perceived each other as a threat everyone would be suspicious and guarded all the time are they pulling my leg no one would feel safe Are they trying to pull a fast one on me? You see, without extending even a basic level of trust in our normal everyday interactions, we would all be overwhelmed with cynicism and anxiety. Always on edge, wound up, ready to fight, take flight, freeze, or even fake it. And and the longer this heightened state of stress persists, it's not difficult to imagine if we developed a sense of paranoia Even psychosis. I'm sure this has got to be some of what David is feeling as he's seeing, man, there's no more godly people. There's no one here to speak the truth, stand up for truth. Am I the only one? He looks around and he doesn't like what he sees. Honesty no longer exists. Honest people are in danger of extinction. And so he cries out in desperation for help because instead of sincerity... He's surrounded, he says in verse 2, by flattering lips. Perhaps you're thinking, what's wrong with a little flattery? Doesn't everyone appreciate being told good things about themselves? Of course they do. But the flattery that David writes about is a disguised lie. You see, that's not the same as a thoughtful and honest compliment a little trans a literal translation of flattering lips is lips of smoothness when a smooth talker speaks it sounds like praise and appreciation but his true intent her true intention is to manipulate to cheat deceive and hurt you and that intention is being hidden from you for example It might be tempting to bask in the admiration of a smooth talking coworker who leans in and whispers to you, you are so smart. No wonder everyone is jealous of you or the importance you feel when a smooth talking friend confides, you're the only one who really understands me. Everyone else is just so shallow. Watch out because that feeling of superiority might be used by the smooth talker to drive a wedge between you and the people who matter most. Watch your back when a smooth talker admires your individuality to your face. You have such a unique style. It takes a special person like you to pull it off because behind your back, they're mocking you. And that's why I appreciated this definition of flattery, flattery. Flattery is saying to someone's face, what you would never say behind their back. And so David cries out, Help me, Lord, because instead of honesty and integrity, I am surrounded, verse 2, by deceitful hearts. A word-for-word translation of deceitful hearts is that they speak with a heart and a heart, or with a double heart, also known as the double talker. With one heart, the double talker says what they want you to hear, what they want you to understand, but what they really mean, their hidden agenda is cloaked within another heart that is hidden. A double talker is also two-faced. He or she is an expert at talking out of both sides of their mouth, saying everything and nothing at the same time. They are the acrobats of communication. Communication. Like a contortionist at a circus, they deliberately twist truth, bend facts in order to get people to cooperate and comply. I love what the 12th century Puritan preacher Thomas Adams said. He said, a man without a heart is a wonder, but a man with two hearts is a monster. One such monster that I learned about is the revolutionary dictator and politician, Pol Pot, who ruled Cambodia from 1975 to 1979. My wife and I received a history lesson about that period of time from a Cambodian couple that we've recently befriended. As we were getting acquainted over dinner one night, they recounted the widespread deception that Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge inflicted upon the Cambodian people. With one heart, Paul Putt promised the people the creation of an agrarian utopia, a classless society, equality, justice, and a better future. However, with the second heart, he used propaganda, deceptive tactics, to manipulate them into complying with policies that subjected them to forced labor, food shortages, starvation, Persecution, mass executions, and the evacuation of cities into the rural agricultural areas. The result? These lies eventually led to the estimated death of approximately 1.7 to 2.5 million Cambodians. And we all know who is the mastermind behind this cruel deception. It's the father of lies, the one who has perfected the bait and switch. David is crying out, help God, because when these liars speak, all he hears are boastful tongues. In verse 3, these are the arrogant talkers. They have such an inflated view of themselves that verse 4 indicates that because of this knack to talk their way in and out of anything, they really believe that they're unstoppable, that they can do whatever they want. So much so that if you skip forward to verse 8, it goes on to describe them as strutting about. I imagine them with their chest puffed out, parading their perverted influence and their power over people and situations. But his description doesn't stop there. As if it couldn't get any worse, verse 5 gives us more insight into what was motivating this widespread deception that David was witnessing David cries out because these liars, just like Paul Putt and the Khmer Rouge, were violently oppressing the poor and the helpless, taking advantage of the disadvantaged. So you can imagine David composing this psalm about this toxic blend of deception and defiance that was poisoning his society. He finds himself drowning suffocating with insincere compliments, violence, and backstabbing. And he asked God to dish out a punishment that fits the crime. In verse three, he prayed, God, may the Lord cut off their flattering lips, silence their boastful tongues. Now, don't minimize this. Can you imagine how graphic And how violent this would be if God answered it. David knew. David, as a man of war, I'm sure he could imagine what it was like to see somebody have their lips sliced off their face. He had seen a fair share of violence. Does this surprise you to hear somebody pray like this? I mean, we often think of prayer as something that is so serene and peaceful. Just pray about it. But prayer, is despict- prayer throughout the Bible is depicted as engagement in a spiritual battle. Maybe that's why it's so difficult to pray. David, in this prayer, we see him, hear him taking an aggressive stand against the abuse that he is seeing. And in prayer, he violently rejects lying. And he asks God to intervene. And then in verse 4, he quotes them so that we can have an accurate picture of how boastful, how arrogant they were. We will lie to our heart's content. Our lips are our own. Who can stop us? As far as they're concerned, there's no one that they will answer to. No accountability. They speak whatever they want with impunity. No restraint. By whatever means necessary, they will advance their agenda for power and influence. And it seems like they're getting away with it. There doesn't appear to be an end in sight. They even defiantly, almost as if they're shaking their fist to the heavens, who can stop us? Verse five, the Lord replies. Oh, you want to know who's going to stop you? I will, God says. But he's not just responding to their question. He's not just answering their question. He's also responding to the cry of David's heart, help us. I have seen the violence done to the helpless, God says. I have heard the groans of the poor. Now I will rise up to rescue them as they have longed for me to do. Now listen to what David says in response to what God said. God speaks this promise. I'll stop them. I will rescue. The Lord's promises are pure, like silver refined in the furnace, purified seven times over. This is David's commentary, his response, his reaction to what God has just said. And through this word picture, David is highlighting a quality of God's word that distinguishes it from the words of the wicked. Let me explain. In biblical times, after ore was mined out of the ground, it would have been crushed into smaller manageable pieces. It was then melted in extremely high temperatures in an open fire or in a furnace. And as this heating progressed, the impurities would burn off and the non-precious metals would separate from the silver, allowing the silversmith to collect the purified silver. Now, this was a very primitive process. And because of silk, because of how primitive it was, silver's precise value was questionable because it depended on the skill and the experience of the silversmith to extract the impurities. And so this is why that phrase, purified seven times over, is so important. Usually, silver was refined a few times to remove the impurities. But seven times... That's the Bible's way of symbolizing perfect or complete purity. Each time the silver cycled through the stages of refinement, it became more pure. Now, there's all kinds of examples and illustrations and metaphors that we can make as lessons to learn from this, but I think as it relates to the theme of this psalm, deception and lying, I think there's one thing that we can extract from this word picture, and that's this. Listen, the purer it was, the more confidence you'd be able to have when buying and selling. What I have here, it's not 50% pure. You don't have to wonder whether it's 50% pure, 75, watering down its value. You knew precisely what you had because, wow, this thing has been purified to perfection, to complete. All impurities have been extracted. There is nothing contaminated. You know exactly, precisely what you have. So when you enter into a business transaction, trading, buying, selling, there was no, you couldn't pull a fast one on me. Can't pull my leg. We know exactly what we have here. So when he writes that God's promises are like purified Silver are like silver purified seven times over. He's explained that God's statements are already perfect and complete. No one can improve on them, nor should anyone add to them. So here's your big idea this metaphor is illustrating this truth God can be trusted because He is reliable and His Word is credible. Write that down. You can trust God. Why? because it's like silver that's been purified seven times over. He is reliable, and his word is credible. See, he's doing this because he wants to contrast what David is hearing in the words of the wicked, and he's contrasting that with what he hears in the word of God. See, as human beings, we can speak rashly and promise what we cannot do. Or we can speak deceitfully, what we never intend to do. But when God speaks, his words are promises. They are 100% bona fide truth, guaranteed to be free of any contaminants that corrupt the wicked and their words. Free of lying, flattery, duplicity, deceit, and pride. So Psalm 12 is not only about the word of God, but it's also about the God who keeps his word. And this is why we can have unquestionable confidence in God and his promises. So what does God promise those who are oppressed and being taken advantage of by liars? What does God promise those who, like David, are grieved by the disintegration of social trust happening around them? what What is he promising those who cry, help God, rescue me? God promises, now I will rise up to rescue them. Listen, that promise, it can be trusted. Why? Because he is reliable and his word is credible. What is God promising those of us who are angered by the injustice that we see around us? When we see people spending their time figuring out ways and how to exploit the justice system, manipulate work policies, or even manipulate the school rules against you, but somehow they're able to orchestrate the same rule in their favor. What does God promise? I will rise up to rescue them as they have longed for me to do. God can be trusted because he is reliable and his word is credible. Now it seems that David's referring to people who are accomplished, who have significant influence and power because they're so full of themselves. But these descriptions, they can also refer to people that you once trusted. Oh, they might not be famous and powerful, but they still took advantage of you. They lied about you. They threw you under the bus, burned you and betrayed your trust. What does God promise you? As you cry, help God. I, I don't trust anyone. I'm alone. I can't trust anyone. God promises, now I will rise up to rescue you and you can take that to the bank and count on it. When I first started following Jesus, one of the first rules of interpreting the Bible that was that I was taught was about the next word in this passage verse 7. That lesson changed the way I read the Bible. And it stuck with me ever since. Here it goes. Whenever you see a therefore, go back and see what it's there for. Simple. Whenever you come across a therefore in the Bible, pause, don't keep on reading. Because what he has just said affects what he is going to say depends on, is hinged on, what he has just said. Just like a hinge on a door keeps the door connected to the frame so it could swing back and forth, that's what the word therefore does. What he is going to say hinges on what he has just said. What has he just said in verses 5 and 6? That God can be trusted because he is reliable and his word is credible. Therefore, we know... What do we know? You will protect the oppressed, preserving them forever from this lying generation, even though the wicked strut about and evil is praised throughout the land. Can you sense the hope filled confidence that he is expressing? At the beginning, David was agitated, he was anxious, aggressive in his prayer, crying out to God, Help! God, I'm alone. There are no more honest people. Everywhere I turn, somebody's trying to pull a fast one on me. Someone's trying to pull the wool over my eyes. I'm angry about it. And I feel hopeless. I feel powerless. But when he stops, when he stops looking at the liars and listening to their lies... And he hears the pure and precious promise of the one who is reliable and whose words are credible. It changes everything. Therefore, we know you will protect. Because you are reliable and your word is credible, we are confident you will preserve. We are sure you will rescue. Well, why can we be so confident in God's promise to rescue? Let me give you three reasons as we start landing this plane. So, the times we're living in, we all know that it's hostile. We know that they're getting darker. More and more, it appears that the godly are dwindling in number and the the faithful becoming an endangered species. Righteousness is being marginalized and ridiculed. And its influence to push back against the tide of wickedness seems like it's, being greatly reduced. But one of the truths that surfaces when we disrupt our frustrations, when we disrupt our fears and our worries, one of the truths that rises up when we disrupt those those thoughts and those feelings and we insert a God who is reliable and whose word is credible is this. Here's the lesson. The promises of God are not threatened by liars. What difference does it make in our attitudes and perspectives towards the rising tide of deception? The fact that their lies pose no threat to God's ability and God's willingness to make good on His promise. Here's one way don't be afraid. When He said, I have seen, and I have heard, God is reminding us that he is sovereign and all-knowing, that he has already seen and heard the groaning of your soul. He's telling us, I've already seen it, and I care. You're not forgotten. He's not surprised. He's not panicked. But what kind of response do we see from God? He is poised and unshaken and in control when he rises up from his sovereign throne to take action and rescue And so when you're surrounded by liars, when you're drowning in lies, do not forget that these deceitful tactics, the influence of the wicked, they pose as much of a threat to God's promises as a rowboat armed with squirt guns does to a battleship. There's no match. The forces of evil that are troubling you, your family, your marriage, your friends at work, They cannot overpower or undermine his authority or his ability to fulfill his promises. God can be trusted because he is reliable and his word is credible. Remember what he said through Isaiah as he was comparing just how common and we don't even, we can't take it for granted, he said in Isaiah, that the rain and the snow, they come down from heavens, from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. And he uses that to say this. know how common and how we just take that for granted? It always happens. It's the same with my word. As I send it out, it always produces fruit without fail. It will accomplish what I want it to do. It will prosper everywhere I send it. Why? Because the promises of God are not threatened by liars why can we be so confident in the god's promise to rescue david asked god to impose a punishment that fit the crime their crime was the misuse the abuse of words cut off their lips silence their boastful tongues But did you notice in verses 7 and 8 how long he says God will protect and preserve from the lying generation? It says forever. Wait a minute. I just finished praying that you would stop it and you're telling me this is going to go on forever? And and look at how widespread the praise of evil would be in verse 8. Throughout the land... Wait a second. I just finished praying that you would stop it. And you're telling me that you will protect me and preserve me forever as this thing continues to permeate throughout the land? If we can count on God's promise to preserve and protect forever, and if evil is being celebrated throughout the land, that that must mean, here goes your second one that the promises of God do not depend on the removal of liars. The promises of God do not depend on the removal of liars. See, as beautiful and enjoyable as it is, our world is fallen. It's severely marred by sin. Now, although we See hints of how God originally intended uh, the way God originally designed it, it's not even close. And I think these are some clues that these are the clues that cause us to underestimate just how deep the perversion of sin permeates our world. And one of the ways we see this is in the way that sin has corrupted the gift of communication. The abuse of words has Brought suffering into our personal lives and incredible suffering to the world around us. And so, when we hear promises like this, of course, we hear them and we're thinking, man, I, I want the suffering to stop. The suffering out there and the suffering in here. That's understandable. It- it's natural that when we hear or read these promises to assume that God is promising to rescue us immediately. We cross our fingers. I hope it's soon. But what we have to grow in our appreciation of is that God has a very particular set of skills that we do not. Even the best of us who are highly motivated and who have the purest intentions, when we make a promise, we are at a disadvantage. See, we can't predict what will prevent us from fulfilling those promises. But God, God has the advantage to speak from the vantage point of eternity. He knows both the present and the future. So when he makes promises, It's with an eternal wisdom. This wisdom enables him to see all of the implications of him keeping his word. If I do this, I know exactly what's going to happen. And since he's not bound by time, he can keep that promise when the timing is perfect. And this is why we can trust him. We can trust him to rescue even when we are living among liars, seeing and feeling the effect of their lives. The promises of God don't depend on the removal of liars. So what difference does this make? Well, I think this point is particularly applicable to those of us who worry about the future. Those of you who have a few years under your belt You've had a front row seat to see how the world has changed. You've seen the you've witnessed the lies and the deception, and like David, your soul cries out, "Help, God!" The godly are fast disappearing. The faithful have vanished, and that stresses you out. But it's not so much for yourself because you see the finish line. You see the end. You you. You've been around for a minute, but you're worried for your children, your grandchildren, the generations that are coming up. God, is there going to be anyone left to represent the truth? Are my kids, my grandkids, these future generations, are they going to be carried away from the lack of anyone standing for truth? I think this point speaks specifically to you. Instead of being an agitator of society, because you're agitated by society, instead of being agitated by that society, be an example to that generation of this steadfast, hope-filled confidence in the promises of God. That will serve them better. Let them hear you pray, yes, about the realities of what you're seeing. Let them hear your wisdom. But don't forget to pray with the boldness and the confidence in a God who doesn't fail and hasn't let you down and won't let them down. Because this God, he is a firm foundation who can be relied upon when everything is shaking and everything is being questioned. Like a mother hen protecting her own, the psalmist says, he will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and your protection. And it's also their armor and their protection. God can be trusted because he is reliable and his word is credible. We can be confident in God's promise because the promises of God are not threatened by liars and they don't depend on the removal of liars. Are you disturbed by the state of our world? Do you find yourself getting agitated and aggressive when you pray about it? Do you long for God to rescue you from it? I want to affirm something there too. It's not all wrong. That angst, that revulsion that you feel, it's a good thing because it's pointing out that you long for something that God wants. You long for righteousness. It's pointing out that you understand that you see that this world is not your ultimate home. It's not the place where you will find rest and peace. That was the same thing that moved the heart of David over 3,000 years ago to pray, God, cut off their lying silence their boasting you see your reaction your rejection of wickedness around you that internal ache for righteousness is to be done around you is a good thing because it represents what god wants he desires righteousness why because he hates sin he hates sin because he sees what it does to us he sees the violence he hears the groaning and david is 3,000 years ago kind of forecasting God is a judge. Does that strike a chord within you? Well, Jesus has a special blessing for those of you who are hangry for some righteousness to be dished out. In the Beatitudes, Matthew, Matthew copied down Jesus' words when Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why are you blessed? Oh, because that desire for righteousness, it's going to be filled. And boy, will it. When you fast forward to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, it describes to what extent that desire for righteousness will be filled But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. You want rescue? Do you long for God's rescue from this world? God promises, I will rise up to rescue. It's coming. What do you mean it's coming? Yeah might not be for now. see, a delay in filling this desire for righteousness is not the same as denial. God, the righteous judge, promises to dish out some justice on the unrighteous, and finally, your longing for rescue will be fulfilled. You can be confident in the promise of God. Why? Because the promises of God, that is what satisfies our longing to be rescued from liars. It's not in... God, would they stop voting like that? Come on, let's start waving our flags, and let's boycott, and let's do this, and let's... No, no, no. That's never going to satisfy. That desire for righteousness is filled, is glutted. That hangriness that you feel when you satisfy yourself in his promises. So, but how can we so, be so sure how can we know that he will keep his promise to satiate that yearning for righteousness all oh, that's what I've been saying God can be trusted why because he is reliable and his word is credible in the meantime while we wait how are we to live well here's some miscellaneous thoughts pray like David Pour out your heart. Use words in this way. This is all about the contrast between how the wicked use words and how God uses words. One of the lessons that come out from this, use words the way David is. pray, pour out your hearts to God about what you see. And don't forget to represent the God who never fails in your prayers. Number two, spend time. Spend the rest of your life getting to know the God of your salvation, this God who keeps his word. See, one of the reasons why you might find it difficult to trust in this God is because we don't trust what we don't know. The more you get to know him, the more familiar you get to be with who God is, his values and his ways, the more you will be able to trust him. But it's not, it doesn't work the way you think it. Oh, I just learned more knowledge and then I trust. No, no, no. It works like this. As you get to know him through his word, his pure word, you start getting all these tools, all these tools. And, you, and the more tools you have, the more equipped you are for whatever circumstance that comes against you, that causes you, man, I'm not trusting. Oh, wait, I got something for that. I got this one. And all of a sudden you find yourself further in life and you find this other situation that's stressing your capacity to trust this God who is reliable and whose word is credible. Oh, you know what? I got this other tool that I picked up along the way. That's how it works. You don't trust what you don't know. So use this word, this pure word, to get to know him. Number three, I think he's given us his pure word to instruct us on how to live. You can trust him. Even when you don't understand and you find yourself, man, I don't know why he says this. You can trust him. You can trust his word to help you recognize deception, not just out there, but also in here. It'll help you from being, it'll keep you from being self deceived. Do you long for righteousness for yourself as much as you want it out there? See, maybe as we were going through this psalm, you don't find yourself aligned with David and how we've been looking at maybe you've been feeling, man, I'm the liar. Holy smokes, what's going on? Maybe the spotlight has been put on you in that way. Oh, there's hope. This promise of rescue is also for you, the liar. And that promise is called the gospel. Jesus came to die for liars. Liars are welcome here. Because this is where the word of truth is preached. This is where the truth will set you free. Not this building necessarily, but who we represent and who we preach and who we're talking about. Do you long for God's rescue for this world as much as you long for rescue from this world? And I'd be remiss if I didn't remind you of the highest use of the gift of words. And that's to speak the beautiful name of the word of life, Jesus himself. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue declare that Jesus is Lord. You find yourself drowning in lies, suffocated by liars, and you're asking who can you trust? God can be trusted because he is, he is, and his word is.